We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am I'm COVID positive. Okay? And it's not my fault. And it's not it's not my my problem. It's something what? that I'm dealing with and I'm trying How with my family to problem? get over this. And I did infect my entire family. And You're- that it, it fucking sucks. COVID is inconvenient. That is the decision. That is the formal determination I've made. When I'm not actively COVID positive, uh, I'm generally doing amazing things at Freethink. Now I'm doing them at about you know 25% of my normal level, which still which is, already is so low. much better than most of you people. You know what? You know what? I'm joined by some people who jealous haters mm, <laughs> jealous yeah. haters you know who doesn't who's, have covid <laughs> michael Moyer. Yeah, that's right you know why vice news because i didn't go to privilege. covid con that you went to in <laughs> miami yeah. no comment no yeah. comment still worth it weird um it's... ask me ask me in a week i'm still trying to nurse my family back to health so we got to wrap this up quick. that panel was good um, <laughs> <laughs> matt Contrary welch or at large door, of reason magazine jesus hi he's here also trying to over talk me yep um gentlemen i'm i'm delighted to be with both of you um and i'm gonna let y'all finish and we're gonna talk about how you're doing but we have a, an exciting guest today exciting someone guest. who we've wanted to have on for a while someone yes. we, we respect and admire a media veteran sort of. podcast legend no, the notorious mm-hmm. mike pesca and i mean notorious like the big kind of way not because of any mm-hmm. sort of Drama that you've been involved in, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Pesca. We are we are excited to have you here. I wish we were all in person so that I could give you all COVID hugs, mm-hmm. but I can't today because I'm in the Bay, y'all in New York, in various locations. It is wonderful to be with all of you, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us today. How the hell are y'all? I'm good. I'm COVID curious <laughs> uh, and sex positive, so you combine those both. Do you think, uh, Camille, there's like a moral hazard with the uh, government guidelines, which controversially in some locales will prioritize minority or marginalized communities? Do you think that that pulled you into being yes. COVID positive? <laughs> yes. you, you, could, you couldn't avoid it at this point. Camille called me and gate. he was like, I'm licking railings. And I was like, what? And he's like, because I get that shit first. I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, he's hung up on me. I don't know what he was talking about. This is what my libertarian friends always rail <laughs> yeah. about. The moral yeah, hazards that created in Tragedy of the commons or something. Real, real talk. Real talk. Yeah. I yeah. have many family members <laughs> who are vaccine skeptics. They're vaccine skeptics. Um, I have some people who I know who are kind of affirmatively black. And I know that there is, there's a Venn diagram there. And some of these people believe that prioritizing the Negro in terms of these COVID policies, it is a plan. It is a targeted strategy to break the black community with these vaccines that are robbing you of your manhood. It is a, is a form of buck breaking with vaccinations real talk there are people who believe that but here's my question have those actually gone into effect like i know there's a lot of um ire when one shows up in a guideline Mm -hmm. but has any do you guys know if any municipality has actually used a racial priority as opposed to just talked about i believe 
I believe they they have. I believe they have, but I also don't know that it's manifested itself in any sort of meaningful sense in in that people are actually being denied vaccinations today on the basis of their race. It is certainly the case, however, that when they were actually doing the vaccine prioritization early on when there was limited availability, they were in fact reserving vaccines for people from quote unquote disadvantaged communities, which means that they were necessarily declining to give people vaccines early on um, who were perhaps not sufficiently black or they were too privileged by not having melanin. The question um, is, Camille, is in obscene. that situation, do you get the vaccine as somebody who's That's not good. black and question. is not sufficiently black by a lot of people's uh, measurements? I imagine they would give it to <laughs> they me. They would. I'm not listening to <laughs> the do. fifth column and saying, you know what, back of the line. <laughs> but it's because I have so many well, privileges. I mean, what is it? I, you know, which one is it? I'll tell you, if I, if I were an elected official and that came before me, and this will tell you where my politics are, I would I would very seriously consider it. I understand the point. And my sister teaches in a uh, Chicago public school and they have 10 percent vaccination. And, you know, the, the deal is anyone who wants a vaccination can get it. So we're actually in the mirror opposite of prioritizing marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. You know, marginalized communities are deciding not to get the vaccines. But I do understand. I do understand the point. Um, I would, though, it would come up against, okay, let's really think of the second order effects. Let's really think of what we're saying with this. You know, of all the, of all the things that we make fun of, that's one where my, uh, I would actually be a bit torn. I just think that there's no medical classification and I've been Camille pilled on this. Yes. Um, uh, but, uh, what are we talking? What, what medical condition is blackness? Or yeah. whiteness or any otherness. It isn't. As far as I know, I, I'd be happy to be to be not that happy. But, you know, if if someone wants to fact check that. No, because who's going to be who's going to be happy to answer that question? Say, it's not what you want to say is you would happily exchange error for truth if someone were to give you some facts and evidence. But facts on God. You, okay, you okay. Ha- yes. all God, as Matt's daughter would say. Um, but what we know here is that race is not a risk factor. Race is a crude proxy for actual things that correlate, which correlates with actual things that are, in fact, risk factors, Um, which means that we're talking about kind of uh, something muddled as opposed to the very specific things that are likely to make you uh, have a bad outcome with respect to COVID. You are very old. You are not in good health. You have various other pre-existing conditions. You live in a home with multiple people. Um, you are uh, morbidly obese or something like that. Like those things, that can get you dead. And if there is some correlation between race and those other factors, it is entirely possible that we will see patterns and that they will be consistent and that they'll be things that repeat over and over and over again in different locales. Although it's worth saying that I've like looked closely at the data at different points during the pandemic, and there are definitely regions of the country where blacks have better outcomes than whites um, really? on a per capita basis. Yes. Um, like where, and, and that shouldn't, that shouldn't astonish that? anyone. I, I can remember like West Virginia, but it was, it's not like a small number. Uh, at the time that I looked, and again, this was at a, a, some random point in the pandemic, it, I think it was something like half when you were controlling for like age and stuff. <laughs> it, and it's, it shouldn't shock us because there are all manner of differences within different communities and populations. This is just, it is a terrible, sloppy way for us to be doing our um, thinking about epidemiology and about public health 
And we've known this for a very long time. I, I can, I've seen these things come up all the time. And I actually had someone tweet something at me about it the other day. And I went and found this old like New York Times editorial from maybe 2017 that said something, the title of it was something to the effect of, is it time for us to retire race and medicine? Like We knew this. That was the same New York Times that used to publish things about how it is a bad idea for us to talk about medicine in the context of healthcare because it leads to imprecision in our conversations and is actually a meaningful kind of discrimination that gets introduced into our conversations. And now every numbskull on the internet is running around like t- talking about how, well, you know, sickle cell anemia is something that really mostly affects black people. No dummy. That's not how it works. That's not how the oh, genetic really? predisposition. I, 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 I thought that, I thought that was how it works. works. That's no, how it works. I, totally, <laughs> no. I totally thought that's how it worked. As, it has a lot to do with malaria. And if you look at a map, you can actually oh, see really? a band mm-hmm. across across the globe in that malarial band. And there are lots of different places that get hit, certain sections of Africa, but also various parts of Asia are hit really, really hard. And those people like have a higher likelihood of having sickle cell trait. And by the way, Camille, genetic diversity is not race, not the same thing, and we should stop it. This stuff has been yeah, well, this stuff has been waiting to kind of come to the fore in the same way that a lot of this stuff that I saw in college in the 90s became kind of popular in the past uh, couple of years amongst kind of everybody. I mean, these people that I went to college with are now, I guess, you know, conservatives like Roger Kimball would call them tenured radicals. But the the thing that the, the, the health thing, I mean, I remember reading a piece in The New York Times magazine by uh, the great uh, Yale professor Sally Sattel in the oh, yeah. 90s and Sally's fantastic and she's written some incre- incredible stuff and she wrote a book about this I think called PCMD um, in the 90s uh, saying all of this race stuff was um, sneaking into healthcare in all these sort of pernicious ways but it was kind of fringe at the time and she was writing about it and now it's now it's so common because I mean there was a um, God who is I think it was Ed West the guy from the uh, Telegraph who was uh, tweeting uh, an exhibit at um, maybe the Tate Modern or something in all of the the um, text that went with the paintings. And you saw that, every, I mean, this has infected everything, just some boring exhibit in which everybody was invited to write these kind of racialized um, essays that go with these, you know, 15th century paintings. It was utterly bizarre. And this, I mean, look at it. I tweeted a few things about it, but the, it, it is everywhere. And the fact that it's in in medicine when the pandemic came, I think that we probably talked about this early in the pandemic. It was how long is it going to take for this entire thing to be racialized by a small uh, group of people that will, of course, get into the New York Times and people will discuss it ad infinitum and it will you know, be good for nobody. Well, I, I mean, I've interviewed people on the show and I think what to channel them, what they would say is what's the when you ask Camille or when you guys ask you know, what's the precondition called being black, they would bring it back. I don't know. They might bring it back to the idea of the slave trade and diabetes, which I think we can say has been discredited, though there are some people, including Oprah and Dr. Oz, who don't want to discredit it. But they talk about, they talk about, they talk about cortisol levels, yeah. right? And they talk about stress produces cortisol, lifetime of cortisol buildup. It is like a pre-existing condition to be a marginalized oh, yeah, group. And I've really looked at the studies and may, I, I would encourage people to keep studying it, but that is not what we would call proved at that yeah. point. But I just wanted to give voice to that is an argument that they yeah, would make. Yeah. I, no, I, I would, think, I would that, give, I think that's right. I would give voice to a snapshot of this uh, Zoom call, or whatever, squad cast call that we're doing, this Brady Bunch 
uh, episode here where if you had to have a ranking of different comorbidities and, and life factors among people here and you included race as part of them to like prioritize uh, care in any way. I'm number one. I- <laughs> well, you, you'd be number one because your diabetes, because yeah, of all the stress you have. You know that I was a slave yeah, in, yeah. in Mauritania like, for, like a, for like two months, but I have diabetes. But, Camille, by the total malaria far, bags. is the healthiest and least likely to have yeah, weird yeah, yeah. disease. Totally. You got two, two early 50s guys and happy birthday. And yet, who's positive, Matt? Who's the positive hey, Pesca, one? You're, you're, happy birthday to Pesca? Yeah, he turned 50 last uh, like, oh, a couple fuck. weeks ago. Man, you uh, look horrible. Birthday. I thought yeah. you were in your mid fifties. <laughs> you and uh, you and Megan Kelly, I think. Are yeah, she looks amazing. Yeah. Pesca, yeah. Gosh, well, what did you do? Yeah. Seriously, really? I still, I still can't wear a two piece. You know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not there yet. <laughs> we'll get hey, there. You know what's we'll another? Get there. The I don't know if real. you want to get on another thing, but here's a it's your podcast. Keep driving, man. he's been out of the game for a while. Let him back in. Let's go. We're going to go. We so very often will say marginalized communities or people of color, and there's a big lumping in. And if I were Hispanic, I would be a little bit pissed off at mm. that because so often they just assume, or maybe the assumption is, and whatever is true for African Americans will certainly be true for me, or maybe, you know, with a 15% discount. And it's so <laughs> often not true. Um, I've studied a lot about maternal morbidity. And it is true, and it is there are things we could do about it. That's that's the thing. California has basically narrowed the gap between white people and black people, but there is a big problem of black maternal morbidity. But you know, Hispanics actually do better on that metric than white people do, right? They do better than black people, white people, and I think Asian kids. Oh my! I don't know what it is, but it's it's always so lazy to just say and marginalized people and people of color. Another fact is that. If you look at the death rates and compare just flat out death rates between Hispanic people and white people, Hispanic people, I mean, I haven't checked in two weeks, but it was higher. It was like 0.1% higher, but Hispanics have a higher death rate. Now, it is also fair to note that since Hispanics are generally younger, when normed for age, that's not true. Mm -hmm. But it is kind of blithe to just say this disease is impacting um, uh, marginalized communities, generally true for blacks questionably true for Latinos, not true for Asians. I mean, yeah. it's very illusion of It's the illusion of rigor is what it is. Well, it's the illusion <laughs> of a category, too, because, I mean, Latino yes. Hispanic is totally meaningless. I mean, is somebody from Spain is the same as somebody uh-huh. from Brazil is the same as somebody from Asian Honduras. Asian is, is similarly I mean, ridiculous. It's completely Black absurd. is similarly ridiculous. And, of course, All the Democratic Party yeah. is finding that out now with polling of saying, wait a second, Hispanics don't like us? Well, some... <laughs> Some people from certain countries do. Some people from certain countries don't. It's pretty straightforward. Well, those are white. Those are white Hispanics. Yes, okay? that was what. That was what we. That was the Trayvon Martin thing. Was the first time I ever heard that. Actually, in a newspaper, yeah. I saw it in the New York Times that uh, George Zimmerman was referred to as a white Hispanic, and I was like, a what? Right. No. I thought he was just a, a weird fat guy. I, I didn't know. I thought Matthew Iglesias was the only real white Hispanic. <laughs> I mean, I mean. <laughs> oh uh, gosh, I can see the Daily Beast headline right now. Uh, <clears throat> Pesca still can't stop talking about race. Yeah, yeah. We're not finished yet, <laughs> by the way. So Daily Beast, please, is it Marlo? Is that the, the lunatic over there? Oh, the one God. with the little fedora? I'm not a fan. 
Yeah, anyway, circus clown. Is there anyone with a homie. fedora? Is it, and, and Max Boot right now is even higher than what's his <laughs> fuck. Yes, good question. Uh, anyone who wears who a fedora, is- a Drudge, I give a, a like a like a lifetime pass. Like yeah. he was doing. Who is the greatest fedora American? <laughs> I say it's Sky Masterson, is played by I believe that was Sinatra in the film mm. version of Guys. It's and just mm. if you're a journalist and it's 2022. And you're rocking the fedora yeah. and the little hand drawn, the line drawing uh, byline. Just no, no. That's like a, a, a <laughs> I, Matt, warning. The problems sign. with like- Matt Max Boot. Do you think that ranks in the top ten? The fedora. Uh, it's it's <laughs> three top three. Okay, Certainly just want to make sure. That's yeah. sartorial sensibilities. I like uh, Glenn Rush. Is he a fedora individual? Is he a fedora? A be fedora is, is he still alive? Did they? Didn't they run him out? Of, yeah, of, they uh, ran him out. He's back. Where is he back? He's now? back co- covering an agency, I think. Is, yeah, he's back at the Times oh. doing some specific work. Good work. I always like that guy. Oh, I didn't. Got, I just I thought he got got canceled at some point. He got screwed over. Um, and and I probably shouldn't talk uh, without having refreshed the, my memory about this, but it just seemed like he was an awkward dude at office parties well i think got, that's by the way on this, you know at the risk of saying something that is maybe slightly controversial but i think that is probably why this <laughs> over indexes in journalism number one because you tend to report <laughs> on the people in you know in your own industry but number two if you've ever been to a party particularly in dc with journalists oh, um the word awkward is you know just on the tip of the tongue always so any kind of interaction with a woman is just going to be at the <laughs> baseline is going to be awkward. I mean, I'm trying to think of anyone who who and isn't. They've already built in their discounts. Oh yeah, the ladies, absolutely. Like, if you live in DC, you got to just okay. I'm not doubting, I'm not doubting, doubting any stories. I'm just saying journalists are fucking awkward. So stop writing me letters, okay? I would I would like to submit a proposal <laughs> if ever it becomes impossible for us to use the name the fifth column for this podcast anymore. Uh-oh. At the risk of saying something slightly controversial, is way too long. But yeah. a wonderful, wonderful. Is it a good acronym for this podcast? <laughs> it, I don't know what it is. I think it's uh, it starts with an N and it ends with a Hey, this is <laughs> our, welcome back to the fifth column <laughs> commercial. <laughs> Pesca, can I ask uh, you a question? <laughs> we go. Speaking of that, yes. Not speaking of speaking. Of, I, I, res- I reserve the right to do yes. <laughs> Well, <laughs> let me do this. This is the way. This is, this is uniquely. This off is the, the way. Rails. I don't know it, if it's it like good, a COVID fog. No, no, no. It's your COVID fog. We're on top of it. Okay. Pesca's running the show. We're good. Camille, let me just let me explain something to you. Let's yes, pretend. Please. Can you mute? Please, uh, can you mute Pesca? Doesn't hear us. You start off myself. soft. You ask yeah. them soft questions. You soften them up. And then the next thing you know, you knock them out. So, Pesca, um, what have you been doing for the past, uh, what, how many months know. is it now? Is it May, March that we last uh, heard your podcast? Uh, uh, February, uh, Lothian's last 11, 11 months. 11 months. What have those 11 months been like? What have you been up to? Have you guys ever heard of ayahuasca? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, yes. We talked about it on the last episode. When I saw you puking no, in I, Prospect Park, that was what you were doing? <laughs> holding your balls? Talking about that was <laughs> Kombucha and ayahuasca, mostly. Wow. Working on the right combination. No, I'm, I'm actually not a, a drugs guy. Um, what, what I've been doing is trying to get back my career and reputation mm-hmm. through, legal, through legal and uh, business means. So I split from Slate, my old employer, and then I had to go out and form an independent entity so I could 
be independent and say things independently. I think you guys understand the value of Can that. Can you explain split, so by the way? Like, and this is an honest question. Was that a, a were you fired? No, you weren't. I was not okay. fired. No, nor was I asked to stay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's that. It's a bad thing. Was, it's, from what I understand, he was put on leave. Yes, and that lasted a while. And the podcast itself uh, was the gist. The gist. The, the legendary gist. gist a great, a great podcast, by the way. Long-standing, valuable property. Yeah, I'm sure the value of that property came up in conversations over the ensuing months. Um, uh, paused for a while, and then in September. A, a, a mutual agreement was reached. Uh, I would assume, uh, uh, presuming some kind of uh, not disparaging too much clauses. I think that's the technical legal term. Um, and then you're about ready <laughs> yes. to start, or you've started again. But, but, so beyond that, uh, and and more importantly, like what was the uh, uh, what 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 are the terms of that particular thing? Well, you can't. Yeah, we signed it. Go ahead. We signed an NDTM, a non-disparage too much, and a uh, <laughs> Matt Welch lawyer, <laughs> yeah, and a uh, non-overly defamation clause. So yes, I could speak a bit about it, but no, we did sign an NDA, and part of the NDA originally was we don't want you to acknowledge an NDA. Like, I can't. Yeah. Come on, I can't say that. I do have a story to tell. But it is also, I think, in my interest not to go on and on and on Agreed. about being aggrieved, you know, this terrible thing that happened to me. Uh, then my whole life and the gist, which I really want to get back, establish again as what it was, you know, interesting conversations where, you know, the host isn't afraid to ask the right question that the audience listens to and say, that's what I would have asked. Number one thing a host could be is the audience surrogate, right? So I needed to do that. And in order to do that, I worked out a deal that was, you know, mutually agreeable given the circumstances between me and management. Well, I, I think it's important to do a couple of things. One, Mike, and we're going to talk about this some more a little bit later because I want to know your plans for it, but the gist is coming back. It is returning next week. So it is returning on Monday, January 24th, five shows a week, same feed wow. it's always been in, um, same name. Mm. You know, these things have value. This is part of the negotiation, but I get the back catalog. I get the feed. I get Mike Pesca on go, the gist <laughs> returning. It is coming back. But but there's something else that we need to do here because we didn't actually say what the hell happened yet. That is the so, thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. I because Mike, you you said you don't want to be permanently aggrieved, and I I couldn't agree more. I mean, nobody wants to do that. But at the same time, if somebody fires up Google and puts your name in, I mean, you want to square some of those m- misconceptions, I imagine. Yeah, well, you know, I was on Jeopardy in 2004, and I lost on the final question, so maybe that's <laughs> yeah, what that's, that's Google what I'm talking will return. About. <laughs> well, in, um, so, you remember the, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, you remember the case of, uh, and talked about the case of Donald McNeil, the yeah. Time Science reporter, mm-hmm. who, it turns out, a couple years after an incident, there was, uh, oh, a Daily Beast reported, although misreported, kerfuffle about people with inside inside the Times wanting to objecting to the presence of Donald McNeil, because what he did, and there was misreporting on this, but then eventually wrote that long essay, what he did was, while on a time-sanctioned trip, used a racial slur in trying to get clarity uh, uh, to a question that a high school girl had asked him. Something along the lines of, wait, did he, did this person you're talking about say the actual word or say the euphemism? But in doing so, he said the actual word. So that utterance of the actual word caused this big problem within the Times newsroom. And I think what happened was 
as I recall. He was retained. There was bad blood. It was this whole decision was leaked. And then it became a big questioning and uh, topic in media circles. Mm -hmm. And Slate, where I worked, is certainly a media circle. And they have a Slack channel called Industry News. Always a Slack channel. And a Slate. Always a Slack channel. That's exactly it. And I got to say, like, and Slack during the pandemic Slack Mm -hmm. is worse than or is more... uh, I, I don't want to use the cliche on steroids. So it's it's regular slack on ivermectin. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's like Brett Weinstein no, slack. Hey, I do think, and we'll get into what happened. But I do think the dynamics of office work and getting along with colleagues, um, and being on Slack when you are not in person. I just read a great book called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley, and she She's talks so about yeah. She's awesome. She talks about, she, by the way, hosts a slate show. Um, <laughs> she talks about interactions, personal interactions as being tiny inoculations against conflict. Mm. And yeah. it's true. Mm-hmm. When I was a guy who hosted a podcast who certainly many of the people at Slate didn't agree with or listen to or wouldn't subscribe to if they didn't work at Slate. But I was still the guy in the office who could say a joke or talk to you when it's cupcake day for your birthday. I tried to be a pretty good colleague. Maybe things were easy and people would say, oh, what he is is not just the sum of his Slack comments, Mm. but everything gets reduced down to Slack comments. So there is this discussion. We were always told at Slate, well, what is the, why why do we even have Slack as a company? Part of it is to sharpen the opinions and thinking of the company uh, internally. And then we take, our thoughts, our sharpened thoughts public, and it makes us better arguers. To some extent, that worked. I can tell you there are many times where I would not get into fiery arguments, but people on Slack would be saying, I don't know, let's say they were being very against Michael Bloomberg's candidacy. And I laid out, oh, oh, this crowd might not not love this, but I laid out a couple of pro Bloomberg Mm -hmm. points. And the editors, right, it was a disagreement. Maybe some people were thinking, Fuck that guy, Pesca. How could he be pro Bloomberg? I'm not. I just said he did have a lot of accomplishments more than the rest of the Democratic field, except for Joe Biden. If you just list his accomplishments, he is a more accomplished person than every anyone running except maybe Biden. I wrote that as an article because the editor said, hey, that's great. That's a use of discussion and debate within a Slack channel. You had a different opinion than everyone else. We're commissioning an article out of that. So I get into this discussion about Donald McNeil and in a sentence, I disagree with almost everyone there that he should have been fired. I just disagree with Mm. that. I think fair, fair argument on either side. I'm willing to hear it. But since almost everyone was saying that guy needs to go, I was saying, I don't necessarily agree with that. I said, I think that what he did certainly deserved, you know, a, a talking to because it's as a representative of the times, maybe it's not the smartest thing to do, but you know, let's, pump the brakes before we throw overboard a guy with such an esteemed career that he would in fact go on to win the Pulitzer Prize that year. And that was it. I mean, people ask me, well, what do you mean? And how do you say this? I was respectful. I not only didn't use a slur, I didn't use the phrase the N word. And I'm doing the finger quotes. I didn't use that literal phrase because I heard that phrase could be triggering. I really tried to be as sensitive as possible, but I got into there wasn't a fiery, nasty back and forth. It turns out that people were upset by my comments. But my comments were, I think, you know, especially after his Medium piece came out, I think the vast majority of the world of journalism, black journalists, white journalists, 
agreed he shouldn't have been fired. Adam Serwer said that. Wesley Lowry said that. <laughs> so, you know, from that disagreement and conversation, after let's just put it this way, after that disagreement, after what I thought was could have been a constructive disagreement, I was never allowed to podcast for Slate again. That's got to make you feel like an insane person. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel like well, an insane person hearing it. Good Lord. And then, and then, and then, you know, they do this whole investigation about everything I've ever done and everything I've ever done is, you know, every day for a half hour on, on the air or on a podcast. So that's what I've done. And the way that I constructed the podcast was by talking about it with producers in the office. And perhaps someone might have objected to the fact that I conducted the podcast by having spirited conversations. I'm not a yeller. I don't think I've ever like really criticized a producer. I would gently say, hey, that was a great edit on X, Y, and Z, but I think you left out this certain part. I was, I think, just pretty constructive in my comments, but my comments were, you know, out of step with maybe the slate way of doing things, let's say. I, I can say this, the investigation, and this was, you know, agreed upon by me and Slate, did show that I had no violations of policy, no violations of any rule, but it's a situation. They said the the way I do the show or the fact that I got engaged in this Slack conversation, it's just not something that can, can continue to exist at our organization. I said, okay, great. I'd love to take the show private. I'd love to take the show independent. It's hard. It's daunting. There's a safety net when you're with a bigger organization and making money for you and them over the years. But that's what I was I was made to realize. I I mean, you realize you're the third person down the line here that that has questioned how one uses the word. This student says, how can you use this word? Is it the A? Is it the hard ER? Let's ask Donald McNeil. Donald McNeil says, well, you know, well, what did they say? How do they use the word? So this kid apparently got in trouble. Donald McNeil gets fired. And then you comment on Donald McNeil and you get fired. Anybody even touching mm-hmm. this and even having this conversation about it is being well, not fired or being being pushed out of slate, whatever you want to call it. But you were sanctioned for it. I mean, isn't it odd yeah. as a journalist where <laughs> someone comes to you from Slate and says, we don't think these conversations should be had at a journalistic institution. We don't, Don, Donald McNeil should probably not be having these conversations with students. I get that that's a little bit different because it's like a 16 year old or something. And maybe that was a little sensitive, but getting fired is obviously a little over the top. I mean, did you worry in some sense that, that, you know, this is Slate? which, you know, Michael Kinsley was the editor of, Christopher Hitchens was a columnist. I mean, used to read stuff from Paul Berman and all these kind of disparate voices, mostly liberal, but, you know, a lot of heterodox views amongst liberals. And it's, I mean, did it feel like it was this kind of stultifying sense of conformity all of a sudden where, you know, maybe three years ago it wasn't? I'll say, I'll say this. When I joined Slate, Slate was an interesting place and it prized surprise. And to just say the thing that the audience wanted because you felt like they, they wanted to hear it or that you had to say it, that was not in the ethos of Slate. Mm. That is true. I was attracted to that. I always did my show like that. So maybe things changed around me, but I've always going to be the kind of guy who, and the, and the kind of broadcaster who had a bond with the audience, who knew what my audience needed and wanted to hear, which was not just to pet them and reassure them you're the right ones. I mean, in the trailer 
that I put out that's out now, I said, you know, my type, it's maybe a questionable niche. You could get really successful by telling audiences what they want to hear. Sure. But since I was really into saying maybe what you don't want to hear, and I'll also tell you when I'm wrong, but what I'm not going to do is just rally round our own rectitude. That's the phrase I use. That's not what we're going to do mm. here. And I didn't. And I guess, you know, we could say we could you could judge if it was tenable or untenable at that organization. I wasn't going to do it. It is interesting that you said um, that there's something about the slate way of doing business. Um, and I, I went and looked on the slate website and I'm confident we've mentioned this before, probably when that drama was unfolding. But a search of the slate website will turn up 231 results for the word nigga, N-I-G-G-A, um, and for the word nigger. Can I get a drum roll from somebody? 455 results for the word nigger. And not all of those articles were written by John McWhorter about the word <laughs> nigger. Um, one of them was written by the aforementioned Christopher Hitchens yeah. in a, a heater wow. of an article, which I don't even think he's exactly right about all of these things. Um, but it's an interesting essay. And it's wonderful. And the closing bar is remarkable, and which is characteristic for Hitch. Hatred will always find a way and will certainly always be able to outpace linguistic correctness, which is just true and an important, important affirmation for us to actually ingest so that we can know that these ridiculous taboos that we are trying to enforce, as if this is the way that we're going to pursue ultimate justice and safeguard ourselves from ever having to enter dangerous spaces again. It's not just obscene, it's completely stupid, and it renders us more vulnerable and not less vulnerable as a society and contributes to these, these insane, um, rather obscene scenes. And I, I would actually commend this essay to people. People should go um, search it out. Uh, I think when Hitch talks about courage and cowardice in this essay, um, it's particularly um, valuable. Um, this this episode that he had on Chris Matthews' show, where they ended up having to cut a, not cut a segment, but <laughs> the segment ends because he utters dangerous words, yeah. which again are also printed on the Slate website and have not been removed. You can still find these dangerous words, which may have been typed, which suggests they were probably thought by white people. Mm -hmm. Holy shit! Mm -hmm. I can't believe it. Um, it's it's. Utterly preposterous, Mike, what, what transpired and what took place there, what, what happened to you. And when we talk about what happened and when we talk about the fact, Moynihan, I mean, when you said you're like the third person downstream, like that hadn't even struck me. But he's not just the third person downstream talking about something. He doesn't say the word. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, I, I didn't know that. Well, we have to about this. That I, I agree with John McWhorter, maybe. That in context, journalists who are adults and not babies who are wearing diapers to work, not that a person who wears a diaper to work is necessarily a baby, but in general, most no. of them are. Or not right? that him wanting to be a baby is something right. we should And you know what, if you want to wear diapers because that's your thing, more power to you. I endorse that. I endorse yeah. diversity. That's what yeah. I endorse. But don't sit next to me. Um, 
But to you the know, word, Camille, geez. you know, I mean, as Mike says, and I want to ask Mike about I this. was on a roll. I got caught up with the baby thing and the code yeah. of fog. Yeah, you, got, you, got, you yeah. got into wearing diapers. And but it's like, the diapers. Yeah, you got into that. I'm going to try wearing a diaper. I haven't worn a diaper in a long time. I might be into it. It could be a thing that I like. Three months is a long time. Uh, <laughs> when you when you said, when you said it, I'm like, like, I, I did One I, night, and you said it didn't count. Yeah, well, it didn't. I mean, you were drinking, and you were on ayahuasca, you said and you, you were at mention Pesca's house, puking in his garbage. I guess. My judgment on that is, I guess it depends. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh man! Oh you know, my gosh! Would have asked him to leave too, um, <laughs> for different reasons. Oh, no. Like you said, you said it's you didn't so even bad. use the word in that context. But the funniest thing about this is, I don't know what this the the name of this website that did the first kind of like quote unquote reported piece about this, and I think they emailed you questions because the the decider, defector, the de- defector, defector, or whatever. Yeah. You know, and they um, laid this out, this case out. And of course, the Daily Beast, where I used to work uh, before it became an absolute horror show, had this uh, headline was, that you know, Slate podcaster fired because he wants to say the N word or something to that effect. Yeah. And yeah. Th- what they did is they said, Garbage. you know, this investigation's happening. And we found two examples in his career where he actually uttered this, but they weren't in a hateful way, but he did utter them. So <laughs> he did find what? you. No, this is actually true. I mean, Mike, you can explain this, yeah. right? I mean, this, this is, this is right. Where people were upset where they, f- they went digging in your garbage and found that you had said something contextually and, and, you know, not hatefully, but that was, that was enough to push you, push you out in a way, right? Yeah. I, Quotes, I would, uh, well, at one point I was a reporter for NPR and in 2004 there was a Howard Beach trial. Oh, Not yeah. that Howard Beach trial, but another mm. one, like uh, history history rhyming, but badly. Mm. They bring in um, Randall Kennedy. So the kid who does, the white kid who does the beating and utters the word while beating, a part of his defense is, oh, this word isn't necessarily uh, indicative of racial animus. It could be just indicative of a great love of the Wu-Tang Clan. Yes. So they bring in, Beach, that's usually the yeah. case. <laughs> so they bring in Randall Kennedy, right? Randall Kennedy wrote a book of uh, this title. Mm-hmm. And in reporting it, <laughs> and this is, I don't know, if, maybe people don't know this. When you report something, when it's a reported piece for NPR, you talk about what you're going to say beforehand. You have a script. Mm-hmm. It's edited. Maybe one or two people see it, especially if it's sensitive. And it was decided that I would, in fact, say the word because I'm accurately describing reality as it is, not as we want it to be. Would you do this in 2021? Probably not. Is it right or wrong? If I was a reporter for NPR in 2021, I might have my own thoughts, but I wouldn't, you know, try to try to get it out onto the airwaves. I never, you know, of that search you did, Camille, you won't find me there, but you won't find any utterances of mine. Mm -hmm. But there was a time when I relayed a quote because it was relevant to what was going on. And then, you know, I said I was very nervous about putting that out on the air. And so I talked to editors of my own volition to make sure this wouldn't go out on the air. I always thought that what I was trying to do was to be as careful and sensitive to uh, community standards, newsroom standards, mostly my audience's standards. So there was no policy against this. Uh, my show was editorially controlled by me. I always decided to either balderize the word or just never say the word. And I do have to say, although I agree with Hitchens, it was obviously written at least 10 years ago because he died 10 years ago. That's how writing works. Um, I 
do you think you have to take into consideration if you work with colleagues what their opinions and sensitivities are? And as soon as it was made clear to me that this was their sensitivity, I said to myself, I could, I could avoid this topic. You know, if I have to trade off this topic or saying a specific word, even if it's part of a quote, no matter what I think, I hate banning words. I do hate banning words. I hate impinging on free expression. But if you're going to be a person who works in a functioning newsroom, you have to sometimes make these choices. I was willing to make these choices, but then other choices were made to me and upon me. I should uh, point out that Camille has been trying actively to have me say this word for <laughs> again eight, eight years, but like me a little bit longer because we had the TV show together. Yeah, yeah, He's been yeah. trying to get Moynihan, and I, th- I think unless we got really stoned or uh, probably not stoned but drunk, uh, we've been successful on this program. But you could, if you like, yeah, you, work. You've said it. You've said it at least once. If you work to Google little, enough. It's going to be two or three for me. So, uh, like, uh, uh, and, and like to imagine that at some point, like I got in some crosshairs and people finding that. And then like that, that Matt really wanted to say the N word. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, uh, there's a thing that you have in common with Donald McNeil. Uh, besides just the Slack thing, because remember, Donald McNeil was investigated originally by the Times in 2019. They came up with their little micro punishment. And the problem was that it wasn't good enough for the newsroom in 2020, which is interesting. So, yeah, there's that Slack component. But when that thing was first uh, being reported, I think it was Maxwell Tanny. I would like to name the person at the Daily Beast who I have no respect for. Um uh, when that was coming up in the Donald McNeil reporting, there was all of these quotes that would come from people like, well, it wasn't just that one time. And I was reading that today when re- rereading stories about your case, which I had safely forgotten about. And, you know, f- screw Pesca. Like, he was a dick to me that one time on MSNBC. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Was I ever? No, no, we were good. Um, uh, have you, uh, well, I'll ask you about MSNBC later. But, um, uh, but he had quotes like that saying from people at Slate, it's like, well, the investigation is not just about this. I wonder what it's. This is not an isolated. This incident. is not an isolated incident. I would like to have your comment now, thinking about those uses of those words in the original story. What did they mean? What do you feel about them? And how much full of shit? Obviously, was? it's meant to convey the fact that maybe I did this. Maybe I did other worse things. Maybe I'm running an illegal puppy mill out of the basement. It could mean anything. <laughs> Uh, This wasn't an isolated incident. The mind reels, and it's quite obvious. They know the purpose. By the way, when you say people said this, this wasn't people off the record who are just looking to defame me. I think this was officially quoted people who shouldn't be saying, who shouldn't be raising specters, you know, engaged in the raising of specter, which of course would redound to you know, reading into what I did, however you wanted to read into it in the worst possible way. I, you know what? I, during this whole thing, I talked to three journalists, right? I talked to the New York Times, Ben Smith. I talked to Eric Wemple of the Washington Post. I thought they'd give me a fair shot. They mostly did and love all the Wemple's articles. He could write, he could, he could write however he wants. He didn't get, he didn't get, he might have gotten one fact slightly wrong, but mostly he didn't get it wrong. And I talked to Ann Applebaum because I really trust Ann Applebaum. And she wrote almost nothing about me, but just referenced me. And I did that because I didn't want to get into, I didn't think I deserved and Slate deserved any sort of innuendo. I didn't want to get into any sort of public mudslinging. I did, on the one hand, if I wanted to be one of these guys who really 
monetized or took advantage of my so-called victim status, I would have done that. What I really wanted to do was to get back to doing this, the gist, this podcast that I love, that the audience loves, that has made me money and gives me satisfaction, I think does a little bit of good in the world. And I thought the best thing to do was not to get into statements like that. So, you know, I'm happy to have taken the upper road. I also found that, you know, on that, the high road, I think is the idiom, not the upper road. Anyway, I found, <laughs> we'll allow I it. found that on that article on Defector, I found it interesting. I read the comments, right? First of all, they did get all the, everything they quoted, not off the record. They ended on an off the record ad hominem attack. Like you just can't do that. But of all the people, of all the, um, conversation in the Slack channel that they quoted. They got all those quotes right. And it was obvious what their tone is, and it ob- it's obvious what Defector wants its audience to think. But I did find it interesting that the comments in a Defector ar- article on the Defector site, I mean, the first one was something like, Pesca, this guy sounds kind of fishy. Okay, that's funny. But the rest of them, I would say, were two to one. I don't think he did anything wrong. And so maybe I was just looking for, maybe I have a confirmation bias, but I said, okay, Defector's the worst they could do. You know, obviously, Defector is written by former Gawker editors, and we had an editor at Slate who was... I I know where the article was placed, and I could figure out almost all of the sources of who was saying what, and I know what axes there were to grind. But even so, most of the people reading the the Defector article were like, I don't know, it seems like this isn't so bad. And then the people really lowered the boom and thought it was bad, always read into it something more. You know, well, the kind of guy who would say this would say that, Mm -hmm. or... Mm-hmm. Or what's with white men? I don't know. I mean, a lot of things are with white men, including, you know, deaths of desperation. But I can't answer for white men, right? <laughs> if you specifically talk about what I did and what they said that I said, which was right, I don't, I don't even know that. I, I think a reasonable person wouldn't even find it to be, you know, worthy of serious censure. But you, you know, you, I think that it's, it's right in a way for, for you to say, like, you know, I want to speak in a manner in which I don't offend my coworkers, but you're Im- 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 imputing some sort of good faith to your coworkers, which they or maybe, were not. Imp- maybe it's self-preservation. It's self-preservation, but I mean, they clearly had no interest in good faith with you. So, I mean, I wonder I it what- why. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a wide array of coworkers and yes, there's some that that is certainly true for, but I do think the dynamic is when something like this happens, I think the dynamic is the vast majority of people just want to be good people. So there are the people who really know me well, who know what kind of person I am, and they supported me. But they had to do so quietly and silently, yeah. or else, you know, bad and things. And that was the case. Happen. There were people that supported you, but they just didn't want to come out and say it. Yes. Not, no, no one who was working at Slate wanted to come out and say Isn't it. Isn't that kind of a problem when the teachers are afraid of the pupils in a way that I presume most of the people, the one person who I saw that was on the record – um, was probably 24, 25 years old and hosts a podcast that's Slate now after you left. But the last quote that you said in that Defector article was one that I pulled up because it's, it's pretty amazing. And, you, you know, I mean, you're saying like, I look, I want to, I want to make sure that these people aren't upset about these things. And you say, you say nothing at all, but you engage in this argument about Donald McNeil, which is everybody in media is doing, but you engage with the wrong opinion. And the result is somebody saying there are people who enable him to be who he is at work, whatever the fuck that means. The problem isn't simply, isn't simply that Mike Pesca is intellectually uh, lazy and racist. Not oh, just yes. that, by the way, you are clearly <laughs> just, that. Biggest problem is that he is accountable to no one, 
which again wow. is, is you what? end something on something that is utterly incoherent, accountable to no one for what? making an argument that maybe Donald McNeil should have gotten fired. I don't know. You're very nice. I'm not very nice. I'm fucking, <laughs> think these people are fucking insane. Like these it's are also these just, just, this is journalism. These it's completely stupid. It makes no it's sense. Madness. It's utter like fucking it. madness. I like the idea of putting forth an argument. Okay, stipulated. Mike Pat, intellectual, lazy racist. <laughs> Let's grant him that he is like the Bull Connor of Slate. But the real problem is that he's accountable to no one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you were racist, that'd probably be the bigger problem. But, you know, who am I to say? Probably right. The problem's not Bull Connor. It's Bull Connor's boss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what's that His trying to do? Steve that no one talks what's, about. <laughs> what's that quote trying to do? It's a clever quote. It's, I yeah. think, a, it's obviously a calumny and an abdication of journalistic practice to ever allow an ad hominem anonymous attack. Like, mm. that just can't happen. But mm. okay. Um, what the quote's trying to do, who's it putting on notice? Like there's this whole defector article that every person who reads it says, Ooh, I don't want to be that guy. Right. Yep. And then exactly. who is that quote putting, who is the subject of that quote? Cause it's not me. The subject of that quote is everyone who enables it. So it's a shot across the bow, not at me. Right. It's about the guy who doesn't, or the girl who doesn't do anything about me. So mm. the know. boss who doesn't quit, right? Like that's a, it's an interesting aspect. And I often think that what's his face, Marty Noble from the Washington post was that guy. Like you're, you're an old dude. You've, you've done incredible things in his life at the Boston globe in, in, in past and your newsroom has changed and you're just white knuckling. Like when, yeah. when does this, when does the severance do? When can I get Felicia Somnes out Mar of here? Marty uh, Barrett, right? Isn't Marty, Marty Noble like, Marty a, like a Newsday a sports shitty. columnist? Sorry, Marty Noble. Sorry for implying that you were good, Marty Noble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm just, He's proud of the Islanders. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Marty Noble's fine. I didn't mean to slander him. It's just Marty Noble's bosses. I mean, yeah. he's got to be accountable at some point for his crimes. Uh, but no, like you see people doing this. Some of them lean into it. I think Dean Baquet at the New York Times leans into being a big fucking coward. But there's other people Jeez. who are like trying to get his. Uh, Dean Baquet is Matt worked with. By the way, Mike Matt worked with Dean Baquet at the, the L.A. Times and hates him. Yeah, so, so I, I, I was there. I was there back when uh, the first Muhammad cartoons thing happened in 2006, and I tried to get the opinion section to print reprint one of the cartoons to show how fucking stupid. And note that I said stupid because I really yeah. wanted to say the other word. Um, I remember that, uh, Matt. Let's analogize with my situation. So I don't yeah. want the people Thank who you. come into work to feel. I don't want them to feel aggrieved. I don't want them to feel stressed out. You know, it's I, I, I could have whatever opinion I can on the a, amount of, quote unquote, harm conveying a quote or getting involved in an argument does. But I also want to be a good coworker. And if they say it stresses them out, I'll take it into account. What about that in your calculation? Like, I agree with you. Uh, there is a great value in putting that out there. But what about if the woman in the secretarial poll is like, I don't want to go into work today. I might get firebombed. No, this, uh, this came up uh, almost to a degree that I shouldn't talk about in public because Moynihan was involved. It's his fault. But um, this came up. The reason we had a draw Mohammed contest um, at, at uh, the, the denouement of which Moynihan just declared by himself. Yes. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> I had to, yeah. with a bunch of pussies. That's why. Yeah. Then, <laughs> Turned out I was wrong. <laughs> Again, <laughs> we're not going to talk about this, so I didn't bring it up. Um, but uh, no, like 
that that becomes part of the the consideration of like what do you do with the absolutely non-journalistic staff who are showing up to work and and when i was at the times it was the same ultimately when it came down to it this was the consideration we're worried if we do this there's going to be a bomb in the lobby and it's going to kill the security guard who didn't ask for this yeah. and that's a great and that is a very difficult and tough question yeah and, and it's also what the answer, terrorists want <laughs> but it, but it's but isn't it isn't it like a step removed from what actually happened in Mike's circumstance because in Mike's well, yeah. circumstance Mike was being enormously respectful of his colleagues perspectives the challenge here is that Mike has the wrong ideas. In fact, that he's even willing to entertain the possibility that mm-hmm. there might be another perspective is what offends them. And it's shocking. Like, it sounds like, Camille, no, 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 you're going too far. Here's a quote. Mike Pesca is really the only one causing these kinds of conflicts, a staffer told me. We have other staffers who hold opinions that are unpopular at Slate, <laughs> but they are not provoking their colleagues in a harassment worthy way. That is my favorite translation. Worthy. Is, what does that mean? No, but the trans, this is not, this is not. He didn't harass me, but it's worthy my, of harassment. This is, for, this is for those other employees who work there who have similarly bad ideas, yeah. but who say nothing. We know who you are. Yeah. Keep quiet. Listen, listen. Let's bring let's bring this in. This is the end of the sermon. This is they're, they're playing the music and the tie the the, the tie plate is going around. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell you, this is the message here. This mm-hmm. is the message. The problem isn't Mike Pesca. The problem isn't even these people. These people with their ridiculous perspectives and their determination to excommunicate or 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 behead anyone who has the wrong sorts of ideas. It's all of you slobs who know that this kind of nonsense is absolutely abhorrent and you watch it happen to your colleagues and you say nothing. You are a coward and you need to recognize the moment that you're living in and the importance of being true to your principles. And when you see bullshit like this transpiring in your workplace, say so. Say so. Because I'm confident that most people know that it is preposterous for us to fire people for using words that sound like words or suggesting that it might be appropriate to use a word in some other context or just more generically for having a conversation about a difference of perspective in in a business where people actually work with ideas, where they work and engage with people who disagree vehemently, where they're supposed to be complicating difficult narratives, getting beneath the surface of conflicts so that we can actually understand the difficult, complicated, dodgy, awful, and wonderful world that we live in so that we can build something better for ourselves. And you people who value safety and your own security and perhaps your own little peace in your fiefdom, who hope you can just get by by never saying anything, by refusing to be brave and call bullshit just occasionally, you're part of the problem. You are part of the problem. Very, and that's all yeah. I got for today. No, Go very, on. very well said. And I will say the one thing that is the okay. parallel between what what you know Mike brought up and, and Matt brought up about the Muhammad stuff is that you know the idea of this in a way, and the reason I can't, I, I said the draw Muhammad thing was because of a 
a woman named Molly Norris, who is just some random woman who drew like a teacup. She was that said, some random. She, well, she's disappeared. Yeah. No one has found her she's since. And she was uh, Seattle Weekly, I think, and and uh, drew like a teacup and said, "I'm Muhammad, whatever." And you know, the idea of that was was that you would have, uh, you know, the Spartacus moment where everybody does at the same time, and then you know, there are too many targets for anyone to to actually to actually attack. So yeah, I mean that, and that way it's, it's, it's similar. The reaction should be something like that, but yeah, you're right. It's also very, very different because, you know, Mike asked the question to Matt of like, you know, what, what do you think about your colleagues and their concerns? You know, the woman in the, the secretarial pool, let's go back to the 1940s and say there's a secretarial pool <laughs> that you would, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Un- unbelievable uh, gams on this dam. Uh, but there was the, like get away sticks. If there was, a, if there was something like that, obviously it, it, it's quite different. But this is what happens in the case of Slate because it's actually, you know, Mike wants to be respectful, but you can't be respectful of these people because this is what they want. And this is the quote from the defector that I thought was really, really appalling. I don't want to be in a workplace where people feel emboldened to have this argument. People's <laughs> humanity is not an intellectual debate. Look, motherfucker, uh, whatever that means, which is which is some incoherence masquerading as something clever because it's just a mash of words that make it don't make a ton of sense. But I kind of get what this person is saying, um, even though it's only marginally coherent. The thing is, is people's humanity is not a debate is to Camille's point as way of shutting down debate. Yes. Of, yes. This is a, a warning across the bell. We do not talk yeah. about these things. These things are not up for debate. That is not a, a, a journalistic instinct, and you're in the wrong business. If you want to go and work for a 501c3, an activist organization, please go do it. But when Michael Kinsley became the first editor with the money of Microsoft in the, the late 90s to create this uh, publication, you have a guy that's Michael Kinsley. Where did where did you see Michael Kinsley on TV when before he was on firing uh, before he was on CNN he was on firing line all the time he was next to Bill Buckley as the somebody just taking shot and he engaged in this brutal debate and they were always smiling and it was always a great debate and the fact that this has become this and that I guarantee you all of these people are are wait a second this just popped up you have uh, ten recording minutes remaining for this month. Recording will stop automatically if you run out. Add one hour for $5. This is like a show booth. Wow. Oh, my God. That's un- <laughs> never. I didn't know that that was a thing. Wow. I was in the middle we- of rant, and now I have to pick quarters up to finish masturbating. What Thanks do we get for $10? Way to go, Squadcast. Wow, Squadcast. <laughs> they out-Patreoned you. That is amazing. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I don't have overdraft protection. <laughs> Add one hour. For, okay, I've successfully purchased one recording hour. Wow. Oh, <laughs> fucking assholes. Did you get some wipes? Yeah. You know what I, you know where I was going with this. These people are fucking idiots. Now give me that five dollars. Now go fuck yourself, all of you. These are not debates we should be having. Squadcast is gonna make sure of it. <laughs> and like quickly to Moynihan's point, like it isn't the secretarial pool. I would have more respect for it. And and and, and even in the in, no, in it's our the journalist in the past, it's the journalist. It's coming from inside the building about debate. It's 140 debate. members of Penn. Right? Can we can we can we, can we let's sharpen this up because this is important. This is okay. and we've been talking about and around this for weeks and months now. Perhaps since the beginning of this podcast. This might yeah. be the whole reason the podcast exists okay. because. 
I'm glad we came for those five minutes. And we yeah, agree. Yeah, it's be yeah, this is important. This is important. Mike, we this don't want important. you to talk. The lawyers don't want you to talk. They've already texted me. Like, just talk over him. <laughs> this this is what this is what the the new breed, not the new breed. This is what the new would be vanguard of the new journalism wants. It's precisely what they want. They want advocacy. They want moral clarity. They want to police what can and can't be said, what is appropriate to say and what isn't, what is appropriate to investigate and what isn't, what questions are acceptable to ask, what what the journalist who covers this story needs to look like. And if you don't have sufficient melanin, eh, do, need not apply, you won't be sent out for this particular story. It's impossible for you to empathize with those particular people. And it's certainly impossible for you to translate their feelings for the benefit of your readers. These are the new rules. And there are people who have decided this. And it is a it is a new approach to journalism. So, yeah, it's the calls coming from inside the building. Mike, I wonder if you see that connection between this this new, um, not new, this emerging dynamic, a dynamic that seems to be the the new con- an emerging consensus or perhaps the actual consensus amongst many elite media publications that have been the standard bearers of the kind of traditional approach to journalism that I think we all know, we all agree on, and we all know is absolutely indispensable to the meaningful operation and functioning of a free society. And I, I don't, I, when I say it that way, I don't, uh, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Like if you can't have earnest, open conversations about what is true and what is not and what is debatable and what isn't, if it's just unacceptable to have these perspectives, to have a conversation about whether or not that is an okay thing to do, um, that is a, a dangerous kind of totalitarian space to exist in. And that's precisely what they want for these media organizations. Am I, am I overstating things, Mike? I don't even know if I'm asking questions. Again, I keep having to say <laughs> COVID fog. COVID, yeah. 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 There are questions. I saw the question marks. Okay. Did, I don't know if we had to pay extra okay. for them, but I saw the question marks. <laughs> um, five bucks for them. I think that you're right, that there is and should be a line between journalism and activism. I mean, it's almost a truism to say that, but you have to assert it. Now, there's a gray area because there are some people who are certainly activists and have been certainly activists who were also very wonderful journalists, right? And mm-hmm. and you wouldn't want the work of uh, Ida Tarbell to be erased from history because she was writing it from a perspective or maybe mm-hmm. even maybe even non-late period Seymour Hirsch, right? But in general, <laughs> where I think it shows up is once journalists these days uh, decide that someone is on the right side of the issue, that person gets so much less scrutiny. It is so apparent how hard it is to do the necessary journalistic job of scrutinizing and rigorously checking all the assertions. So Benjamin Crump certainly has been a really great lawyer for people who have been abused by the police. But he also says, because he is a lawyer and an advocate, an inordinate, well, maybe it's ordinate, but he says quite a few inaccurate things. And I just think that there (laughs) is an unwillingness to always, not in every publication, but in general, there's a huge suck in your teeth and, well, we're, I don't know how much we can gainsay what was said. He's certainly on the right side of the issue. That, that is a play. I want to talk about your call to braveness, Camille. 
I think that there is an interesting dynamic. First of all, I asked my coworkers, my former coworkers who I'm friendly with, people I worked with, my wife. I said, you know what? I think if this were happening to someone else at Slate, when there was a big meeting about that person, I would be, I would definitely stand up, perhaps alone, and stick up for that person, or at least ask the right questions. And like, of course that's true. I'm the idiot who sticks up for (laughs) popular people within Slate. But I really do think I'd do it. And I think, though, that there are so many different considerations and constituencies. And I think a lot of people, there's the constituency that just earnestly believes in what you read and the harassment type vehicle or whatever that phrase was about me. They they earnestly believe that. There's there is the constituency that might be overlapping who just wants me gone. Like we can mm. for for whatever reasons that who whatever I represent either demographically or financially or I think certainly politically, it would be better if he were gone and they're using this opportunity or in a situation like mine, there it might be a crowd that is out to that, that would use an opportunity because there's an opening. But I do think that there's just a whole mass of people who want to be good people, who, especially at a progressive place like Slate, hear the complaints of a marginalized community, have internalized the message, who am I as a white person, perhaps, to question the experience of black people? Therefore, critical thought is suspended. Therefore, the normal amount of, but wait a minute, this doesn't seem to all add up. That doesn't occur. And then there is, there are certainly people who are cowards, who want to maintain their jobs. But I also think that there's a whole bunch of people who are strategic. And what they say to themselves is, and not in a bad way, they say, this is the world we live in. I recognize it. Maybe not everyone else does. I know what the important things are. It's not some other guy and his opinion about Donald McNeil. It's my work. Maybe in a place like Slate, they are doing important work. It's my work. I know not to get involved, right? And to them, I would say, how is that strategy working? If you're being... If you're thinking about self-preservation, are you being preserved? Are you sure that next year yourself and status will be preserved as you look at all the occasions across the country where stuff like this is happening? Can you firmly say that by not raising a public objection, woo, I skated and will continue to skate and will continue to work in a, in a place that, you know, pays me and maybe gives me some, some sucker of uh, a spiritual nature? You know, I do think we have to really reevaluate. Hey, it's easy for me to say. I would have loved a bunch more people to come to my public aid. But I do think we have to really evaluate the the choices we're making by not being brave and by not saying, wait a minute, this this is wrong. There's a there's a reason that we so frequently see the invocation of that Martin Niemöller quote, right? I mean, because it's true. I mean, there is a, there is a point at which, you know, no one's standing up for anyone. And at the end, you're going to be the one with the cold gunmetal on the nape of your neck. And you're going to be the one that's the last one assassinated, right? I said to a friend, and I've mentioned in this podcast before, who was in a situation that was worse than yours. Um, and you were just debating on whether or not you know, what you were talking about was allowed to be spoken about in the newsroom, right? Whereas a person that I knew was um, facing what I'm 99% sure were false charges, right? And I said to him, you don't apologize. And I've, again, mentioned this a lot in this podcast because they don't want your apology. 
Nobody's interested in rehabilitating you. Nobody's interested in saying, thank you for your apology. We, it's great, even though you, know, you don't believe your apology and you don't believe you did anything wrong, but we're glad that you did it because it sends a good message to other people and we're in the business of rehabilitating you. Nobody wants that. They want to destroy you. They want to send a message to other people. And so at that point, it's like I said to him, you have to do something. You have to come out and not say sorry. Come out and say, no, this is fucking bullshit and I'm being railroaded. He did not do that because he thought he could survive by just being nice to everybody who, you know, are people that have, I, I mean, I've seen them interact. I've seen what they said privately. He showed me these messages. These are bad people. I mean, they're just people that were, were just enjoying his destruction. And again, as you said, there might be a demographic thing. There might be the fact that he was the boss, that he was making a lot of money, that, you know, one person in particular, he said, felt like, they should have gotten the top job and he got it and maybe thought that she didn't get it because she was a woman, et cetera. There's all of those dynamics. But regardless of those, there's no way out of this stuff by just being like supine and saying sorry. And I no, you have to be, you have to, I mean, you're not going to get people to stand up for you, obviously. You, you, you saw that at firsthand, but I just, you know, I think that more people need to actually come out swinging in defending themselves if they believe. And look, there are people who have done shitty things and that have gotten their just desserts. There's a lot of those people from Harvey Weinstein on down. And that's not to, to, to you know, um, underplay some of the bad things that have happened. But there's been a lot of excesses too. And there's a certain, you know, sort of purge trial element at certain times. I mean, it feels like 1938 in Moscow. <laughs> and so I just had advised people that you don't just sit back and say nothing because there is literally no way you can win. You, Mike Pesca, can in some way because you had a huge audience because you're very, very, very good at what you do. And I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and I'm excited that it's coming back. And a lot of people are too. But if you're someone like, you know, on the, eh, people don't really know who you are. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there are people who get, you know, I was going to bring up at some point, you did an interview with Jill Abramson in which I came up and, you know, she's somebody that survived at Harvard, survived at, at, um, uh, her book wasn't pulped as Joan Allaire's was. She survived at ProPublica, et cetera, because she's big. People know who she is. But I know a lot of people who have been in a similar situation who never worked again. You know, so, I mean, it's, there's at some point where you are set upon, and I think she was rightfully set upon, in my opinion, but you just, there's no one there that's going to stand up for you. And then there's no one there who's going to forgive you. You're on your own, but you do have to make the best of it and actually have to fight back. Because if you don't fight back, it just emboldens people to make, you know, bullshit charges to ruin people they disagree with or don't like. Not a question. My follow-up would just be like, I presume that the six months between March and September was uh, fighting in your own way through the back channel negotiations as yeah. ra rather than the public way through not dropping your innuendo on that side. Yeah. I mean, did it depress right. you at all this stuff? I mean, like when coming, you know, I mean, fighting through that, I mean, did you have moments of like, this darkness that, holy shit, I have nothing at the moment. I have no job. I have no podcast. I, I mean, I had a, I had a great wife and I had very supportive friends and I had a lot to do. Past tense, I noticed. Past tense. <laughs> During the whole time. They're with me. They're still with me. And I'm making yeah. friends along the way. I've been seeing her for a little bit now. It's, it's and Yes. It's the, glory of doing, the glory of doing podcasts is making friends along the way. Um, yes. I, it was, it was, it, it was, of course, yeah, it was definitely the roughest period of my life ever. And 
I have this uh, self-diagnosed condition called anandamide, which is the bliss molecule. I don't know if you've ever read about it. I don't really experience anxiety, I think, as most people do, which is to say, not that I don't get worried, but if there is something out of my control, it just doesn't bother me to the point maybe, I mean, it drives my wife crazy. But so what I'm saying is I am not an anxious person. And I didn't exactly experience anxiety, but there were literally many, if not sleepless, then two hours of sleep and waking up nights because you don't know what your line of rebuttal should be and you don't know what the line of attack is and you're not really even Mm. sure what the charges are. So I said, well, if everyone thinks, (laughs) if everyone, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what the public thinks. If the public thinks, that I'm a racist who wants to prattle on and on and on about the glory of saying forbidden words, maybe I can mount this defense. If the public thinks that I'm obsessed with certain slurs, maybe I could say this. If the public thinks, I don't know what the public thinks. I don't know what, and it doesn't even matter what the public thinks. Mostly they thought like Matt, they read about it and then forgot about it as they should as an act of (laughs) self-preservation. So yeah, it was tough. I talked to other people in this exact situation more very much, much more prominent people than I. And, you know, we're talking as serious a mental breakdown as one could have, right? We're talking suicidal ideation. We're talking pills. This happens, and it happened to more than one person who I think quite unfairly went through something of this sort. Um, it is, I don't want to over-dramatize it. Like I said, I think I said this, I don't think that quote unquote cancel culture or illiberalism, right? Or, or the enforcement of doctrine at any cost. I don't think it's the biggest or 15th biggest problem in our society, but I think it's bad. And when something's going on and it's bad, do something about it, right? Like, I don't think that the Voting Rights Act should uh, necessarily, I don't think that the Voting Rights Act it fits the bill of an existential crisis. I don't know that all the crazy rhetoric about if you oppose it, you Mitt Romney or Bull Connor, but I think it's better to have people be able to vote easily than not. So I support it. I think this is a problem. So say it's a problem. And a lot of people are just in this state of perpetual motion denial where you can't possibly hope to convince them. I don't know. I don't think they're they're far from the majority of America, but I think they at least have reached a critical mass in journalism. So I wonder what can be done within journalism to reform journalism, because as successful as the fifth column is, and I hope that just as the just once was, and I hope will be, and a lot of the superstars of Substack, is that really a proper corrective? Does that represent a wholesale turning away and path well, to a new way of doing things? I mean, I, think about, think about, sorry, Kim, but just, uh, think about what, what has happened with the Joe Rogan discourse this past week, right? Uh, with people coming on, Josh Zepps, our good friend, went on and had a, uh, a, a very spirited exchange about various things having to do with myocarditis and vaccines. Mm-hmm. And like they came away super cool with one another, but the world and then especially media companies was like, yeah, Joe Rogan got punked. Like the, ju- the newspapers, <laughs> like wait a second, the two yeah. guys who were in the so, conversation. It was totally so also, the dynamic is also the the media, these important publications, these establishment institutions covering Joe Rogan 
Yeah. He's the news. And and Joe Rogan, Rogan's audience eclipses theirs. Yeah. And, Joe Rogan and, is the culture. It was the, mentioned in every tweet. It was, you know, there was one that I saw, and I, I texted Zeps about this and mentioned this on the Patreon that Matt and I did the other day, is that people are saying, you know, 12 million people, whatever, you know, heard this misinformation. I'm like, they also heard Josh from Zeps correct him and <laughs> admit that he was wrong and then tweet that he was wrong. Yes, like, it's totally cool. Which, it's, like, which is actually you know? remarkable. But it's it's odd how many people were bemoaning the fact that Joe Rogan has this reach as if, one, as if there's something they can do about it or that they ought to be able to have the right or the ability to do something about it. And And two, I think that is actually kind of an answer to the question that you were asking, Mike. I mean, there's a sense in which I think a lot of these publications are are obviating them. They're making themselves obsolete. They're rendering themselves obsolete by surrendering to the the sort of cultural malaise that, um, and it's actually malaise is the wrong word, the, the cultural like toxins that are at work right now in a lot of media organizations that are, are, forcing them to become fundamentalist and to purge themselves of radical people who decide to be, I don't know, like have independence of mind and to try to have thoughtful discourse about complicated issues that we don't want those kinds of people around. We've already discovered the truth. We have the fire and we're going to protect it at all costs by keeping out the people who think the wrong sorts of ways. And now that Donald Trump is gone, like yeah. their subscriber numbers are plummeting. Yeah. They're, they're falling through the floor. People don't trust them because they run away from the truth. Right. They what are so forcefully incurious about the stories that they cover because they already know how this is supposed to play out that they presume if someone is murdered and they happen to be Asian, oh, well, we know how to categorize this. This is part of a campaign of AAPI violence. And that is all this is. And all Asian people are terrified of being murdered in their sleep by hate-filled white supremacists. Oh, wait, that he was pushed onto the train track by a homeless black person? We can't talk about it. It's, it's weird. It is freaking people out. They don't trust these publications. And they're finding the systematic bias in the stories. And they're looking for other places to get their news. And people like Ben Smith leave these institutions and go form new institutions. And my suspicion is that one, we'll see some of these institutions start to try and do better. And we are seeing some of that, some slightly better reporting coming out of some of these establishment organizations. Um, but we'll also see more and more people start more and more publications and the success and failure um, of more and more people on platforms like Substack and more and more podcasts like this one. Um, and hopefully we'll start to develop the cultural antibodies that we need to sort through all of the, the, the plethora of media sources that are available to us um, and the weird incentive structures that are being created by a culture that is increasingly kind of polarized and insular. Um, but where I do think still a majority of people like long for something better than the, the kind of media, the elite media status quo, um, which is, which is, it's, it's, disserving us in profound mm -hmm. ways, in ways that I think are, are dangerous and unhealthy. And it, it shows up in our discourse on race. It certainly shows up in the ridiculous, hysterical, um, and often just not at all informative coverage of COVID um, and pandemic stuff. Um, and in, in various other areas where media incuriosity 
and um and a kind of offensive level of bias um is just is creating really shitty un and like reliably shitty and untrustworthy uh media coverage but again i'm wondering if i'm all here because you're not no i feel like i'm talking too much what is no, what he's what he means to say no we should no, probably, like to, to, I, I should kind probably of like, get out of here soon. You guys can to stay. kind of like nip, <laughs> nip the question. I think that there is value in projects of independence. Of yes, financial and structural and business independence, and just sort of mental approachal, comportmental uh, approachal. It's good to is that a word? It's a good word. Uh, nope, yeah. not at all. Because okay. um, I know I'm uh, sick, and I'm not quite all here. But approachal is not a word. It's That's an harassment worthy, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It feels like I touched you are worthy of harassment. <laughs> so can you give us like a, a so five days a week? That's a lot. So a lot. I hope it I hope it's short, uh yeah. just for your production standpoint, so you can keep to your nap schedule that you've had since uh, last March. <laughs> but like uh can you give us a preview of what we're gonna hear next week, for example? Yeah, what's your approach to this? Yeah, uh, yeah. How my does that approach work exactly? by the way, my my general approach is to comment on one thing you said, Camille. Uh you shouldn't go in knowing that you have the truth. Because with that orientation, I'm going to be a bit, little bit humble about what the truth is. You'll actually get to the truth a lot better oh. than doing oh. it the other way. Right? I know what the truth is, and all I have to do is keep proving what the truth is. Oh, wait, there's this complicated thing off to the side. Must not, must either try to discredit that or totally ignore that. You know, if you allow that into your coverage, you actually wind up with better coverage and something closer to the truth. So my approach all is that's what the kids do now. They snap. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> that's what they do now. My oh, approach is I, so I had a choice to talk about this a lot or to do the show that I have always done and to show the audience this is the gist that you know and love. And so I love talking to you guys and I'm going to be talking to some other people about my meta situation. But when you listen to the show, I won't shy away from issues of illiberalism or speech and free expression and challenging one's own assumptions. But I'm going to do a show. Week one is going to be about this idea. I think I'm going to do a lot of interviews on civil war, talking about are we in a civil war? I kind of think we're catastrophizing the normal. You know, we usually worry about normalizing the catastrophic. This is a theme mm. that I've always come back to. But, mm. you know, and and part of it is Maybe we're just kind of misapplying what the label is and what the label means. So I'm going to talk to a bunch of people who've been writing about things like, are we on the precipice of a revolution? And what's the benefit of naming it and saying we're on the precipice of a revolution? And then I'm, you know, going to be talk, interviewing, uh, Carl Bernstein and Emily Bazelon about, uh, about progressive prosecutors and, my friend Maria Konnikova will come on to play Is That Bullshit about scientific claims, always a popular segment. So we'll be doing a lot of the stuff with a lot of the same people we've always done it with. It, when, when you, you know, to Camille's uh, point, you know, about the media in general, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to make you feel better because <laughs> the third one, I mean, I went and got a drink. I came back and <laughs> you're still going. Um, but just about the, uh, the media in general, I mean, when you, came back for you're coming back now from your little hiatus. I mean, how do you look at the media now? I mean, when I listen to your 
uh, conversation with Jill Abramson. And, you know, as I said, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. You can do one podcast once in a while that's wrong. So that was fine. You could do one. And we can talk about that later. happened to be the only one you ever mentioned on Fifth Column. I'm going to keep mentioning it, too, because good (laughs) Lord, were you wrong. But when when you're... I called yeah. all the people or almost all the yeah. people she plagiarized and it might not be uh, for them to give absolution. Not everyone got back to me, but I d- at least did the work in that interview. Yeah. He didn't call me though. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> but the, that? She did denounce me during that. But yes. by the way, I'll just say uh, footnote, the one uh, major mistake was the plagiarism actually wasn't the problem is that in the vice chapter, literally every fact was wrong. I mean, by, by like a country mile, it was, that's what got me into it is that I was reading it and I was, that's the only chapter I read. And I said, good Lord, this is crazy and stupid. And to correct the record, I've never said this publicly, uh, but she's said the opposite quite a bit. And I'm going to say something publicly for the first time is that she thought this was some conspiracy Vice was, was talked about in this book and they unleashed uh, me on her. Uh, Vice didn't want me to write about it. I did write a piece. I wrote a, quite a long piece. Um, they didn't want me to do that. Uh, so I tweeted. <laughs> so, so it's actually the opposite of what she says in, in your interviews. Like they were uninterested in me and me talking oh. about this and drawing attention to it. So, um, but as far as like the media, kind of, kind of like they are with all of, of your work. You know, that's a different story. We can do that. Then. Uh, is there an overtime segment that we have for Patreon? Um, <laughs> that's fine. It's okay. We can talk about that. Um, but you know, in that conversation, it was interesting because, you know, she talks about in that book and you guys are talking about how, you know, Vice and BuzzFeed, and that's her kind of argument in the book, were they kind of the cutting edge of media. They were doing things that nobody else was doing. At that time, Ben Smith, I think, yeah, I think Ben Smith was still the editor and they were doing reporting. They did the Steele dossier first and, and controversially. Um, but, you know, that looks so different now. You know, BuzzFeed went public and, you know, it's, it's, I think that if you own BuzzFeed stock, you owe people money at this point. I'm not sure. It's just, it's not doing great. And all of these, all of these, uh, you know, new media companies are kind of gone different directions. Which uh, better prison are you? They're quiz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, now, and like you talked about Substack, we talked about Rogan. I mean, how do you see the media landscape at the moment? I mean, you're, you're breaking out on your own. This is an independent thing. And, you know, a lot of these people are doing opinion. So that's very, very different. The New York Times is still going to be the people that we go to that do very, very good work. And if you're going to email me about this, go fuck yourself because they do do great reporting. And, you know, they also we are braver than you allow them. They have John McWhorter writing, I think, once a week or twice a week or something. So they do do interesting stuff. The Washington Post still is, you know, doing all that stuff, too. They're on the plane with the president. But, you know, you still have this, you know, kind of. I don't know. It's an opinion industry that is untethered from the traditional media industry. It's in Substack and the rest of it. So like when you look at this landscape that you're walking into as a kind of independent contractor and you got to get your, your, uh, your customers, uh, just you. I mean, it's, you're not part of a big organization. Like, is it make you nervous? Do you think that this is, too, we're too atomized that there's too many places that you have to pay money for? I got to pay. If you like Substack, you got to pay Matt Taibbi and then Glenn Greenwald and you got to subscribe to the Column Podcast, whatever. I mean, where are we in in the way you look at media right now? What if all the Substacks were together on one page and they were organized by a headline and you could click <laughs> the article that interests you? Or maybe there was even a paper version of that <laughs> Substack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which tried um, paper version. <laughs> they did. They started with that. I do. I, okay. They are. There are many of them. And it's not so much the atomization as it is the balkanization. Those are related, but not the same thing. So what I do, I love 
first of all, I guess I'm weird. I love engaging with opinions that I disagree with. It actually excites me more than opinions I agree with. So yeah. my podcast consumption, aside from Fifth Column and Blocked and Reported and Barry's podcast and sort of the heterodoxy, let's say, podcast, or in your, your guy's case is just the handsome modoxy. Very the, good, thank you. <laughs> I try, yeah. I try. Yes. Um, I, I will listen to the editor's roundtable of the National Review and I'll listen to Pot Horitz on commentary and I'll listen to uh, the Dispatch and I'll listen to Jonah and I'll listen to Pod Save America and I'll listen to Left, Right and Center and I'll listen to a lot of NPR. And what I'm doing essentially is amalgamating my own um, salon, my own op-ed page, which is the ideal op-ed page. These people should yeah, be yeah. talking to each other. And I'm doing triage where I'm taking this Rich Lowry opinion over here and then I'm listening to this uh, uh, John Favreau opinion over here and I'm saying, I just wish these guys would be in the same room to maybe fight it out, Rogan and Zep style, or just like we used to have. So I think we need to go back. I remember when um, Bennett was forced out at the Times, there was a whole train of thought. What the Times needs to do is just get out of the opinion business. No, because the thought was you can't have opinion with the kind of journalism that we're describing, where you know the truth already and you don't want to countenance uh, objecting opinions. I think what we need to do is Maybe we could take the success of all these sub stacks and they really should figure out a way to, you know, sign up for three for the price of two or four for the price of three. That That's an innovation that's coming. Find all these really vital, valuable voices and kind of unite them under one roof that's easy to find because podcasts are terribly hard to find that puts these people, often they're people who don't mind, you know, debating with other people like the opinion havers are often fine about talking to each other and unite them in uh, in one place rather than having hundreds of different options. Like it's good. It's independent. It's different from the old way, but it's not really convenient. I sometimes wonder, I do like the trend of Rogan success and podcasting success and independent voices, but I wonder if it's like to compare where they are to the New York Times is it like Bitcoin versus the dollar? I mean, crypto has some things going for it, but the dollar is still pretty dominant. The New York Times still has 600 bureaus across the world. Or is it more like comparing it to the internet versus the printed page in 1999? How far along have these new, exciting, in independent voices come? What do you think? Well, I certainly my analogy... I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that Joe Rogan will be the New York Times or will serve the same role as the New York Times. I, I suppose I was suggesting that the, the cultural relevance and the bandwidth that Joe Rogan has at this point is a significant indicator of where he stands in the culture and in his ability to kind of influence the, the, our, our politics and various other things, and the alternatively, the declining bandwidth of the New York Times is indicative of something as well. And my suspicion is that we will see a continuing evolution, a la the internet, where all sorts of new institutions are coming online and new people and new voices are being birthed. And eventually, I expect certain things to be displaced or to have to change in radical and important ways if they're going to survive, or at least if they're going to serve us well in the future. 
um, in terms of having a need to know what's happening in, happening in the world, being able to command kind of the trust and being able to trade on something more than vestigial authority. Um, it is true that the New York Times still does good reporting in a lot of important respects and places. It's also true that there have been lots of ways where I've seen this insidious creep. They do of a lot of same, too. Yeah. <laughs> but these same like intellectual fads um, like have been manifesting themselves in a lot of their kind of conventional reporting in places that should have been more safe. And the New York Times is not <laughs> unique in this. I've seen and the, the same thing page. in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> yes, in the sports page. It's it's kind of you insane. to take pictures right. of the cover of the sports page because it's <laughs> always like this. You can't get a score, but you can get a story about uh, how many aboriginals are on yeah, uh, yeah. the curling team in uh, Botswana or something. And we've certainly uh, seen this yeah. thing at NPR too, right? And and yeah. I think what, what actually happened oh, is less, bizarre, is less like that they, that they, they, kind of implode and fail. It's that they consume themselves. It's like uh, what mm. happened at Gimlet with Reply All. Spotify buys Gimlet. And the, the crown jewel of that company is Reply All. Yeah. And the podcast explodes on the basis of this completely contrived controversy that no one can figure out. No one knows exactly what happened, but longtime comrades and collaborators <laughs> turn on one another one day. One of them disappears into the ether and the this, this show disappears. The most valuable show in their podcast ecosystem disappears. Mm. And the company is that thing is no longer nearly as valuable as it, as it was. Yeah. They they might implode, but for Joe Rogan, I mean, who the hell wants to listen to anything on Spotify? You know, a, 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 like a footnote on the Rogan thing is that you know I don't listen to Joe Rogan regularly. I've listened to it when there's people on that I find interesting. But one of the things that journalists misunderstand about this, well, two things actually, is that you know nine million people, ten million people, they're those are people that are not going to be listening to your podcast. They're Joe Rogan's listeners. Like they're not going to be otherwise be listening to like, oh, Rogan's not on the air today. I'm going to go um, listen to something on NPR. The very different audiences. There might be some. They're mixing that, the MMA part, content. Yeah, this, yeah, the <laughs> MMA thing is that. But the thing that journalists don't that, that attack Joe Rogan don't quite get, and I think that you know he's wrong on a lot of things, but who cares? The the thing they don't quite get is that they, there has to be a space because this is how most Americans are for unformed ideas. For yeah. ideas that aren't fully hatched and people working them out. I mean, what you saw with Josh is Rogan heard something, right? And he's talking to his audience. Well, he can't talk about it to his audience. He heard something because they're going to listen to him and they're going to follow him to the ends of the earth and they're going to do exactly what he says. That's also presuming a lot. I don't, I think that most of the people probably are doing their own research and I wonder how many people in Joe Rogan's audience are vaccinated, but I'm sure it's probably a lot. But you know, it's okay to not have ideas that are fully formed and to work them out on air and be wrong about things and then maybe come back because I'll tell you what, the things, the times that I've seen Joe Rogan apologize or be wrong about things, it's a lot more than I've seen a lot of the people in this business apologize about things. I don't see that very much. You make excuses for them or you just hope they go away. But Rogan knows what he's doing in the, in the sense that he's not a pundit. He's like, by his own definition, he calls himself, he's like, I'm just a dumb guy. And he's, I'm just a dumb guy trying to figure this shit out. And it's like, what, you're not allowed to have a podcast that people like if you don't really know the answer to something? I find that very odd. That's like, well, no. And it's, it, it, it comes at the time, and final point, it comes at the time where we're obsessed with the idea of misinformation. 
And I think that's really poisoned a lot of ordinary conversations. There is misinformation, of course, but it poisoned a lot of ordinary conversations about things like Rogan. He's a purveyor of misinformation. So therefore, I don't I don't buy that. My problem with Rogan is if you listen to his show, there's only 18 remaining hours in the day to listen to any other <laughs> podcast. It's a serious problem. Yeah. I mean, you like, have to sleep. Say, if there's like three so. of the 10 most popular podcasts, I have three and a half hour running lengths. That's it. That's the <laughs> yeah. whole, there go all the other yeah. chances to listen it's to a podcast. sorrow and the pity of Paul podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Adam Curry's podcast goes four hours. His podcast yeah. goes three hours. The guy from MTV looked like a lion. Yeah. yeah. He's got a no podcast. He's got a popular podcast that has mm. a long running length that they have to pay for. I don't for listen to anybody hour. else's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only one you have to listen to. And Mike Pesca's when he doesn't have fucking the lady from New Lord, York Times on. Tight. <laughs> <20 minutes>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mike, I'm going to lie about it. This is what's happening lying about me. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but she was lying about me. She's a little like uh, she's a little like Joe Rogan. She has a fighting experience. Oh my god! She kind of sounds like Doctor well, Evil. Uh, I, guys, I I have to go. I mean, we dude, can we can perhaps keep go. going, COVID but I mean, no. I gotta go. Like I can looking at like my eyes and this in the video. Yeah, that was night. Fucking One is bad. down by your nose now. Oh yeah. my gosh! I mean, I got up at like, like three or Bell's four this palsy. morning. What the fuck is going on with you? I oh, do, man. in fact. And <laughs> I, I know what that is. Um, listen. Mike, Listen. I'm very excited about your podcast. I'm delighted it's coming back. I'm also excited about that hat. I like that black hat. hat. It's really cool. Thanks. Cool. Is that a rich man's hat? That's, it's a rich I'd man's hat. So. It has no logo. I'd say so. The yeah. hat yeah. and the beard, you look like David Tell, who is one of the funniest oh, men on totally earth. Do. Yes, you do. Totally David Tell like is from the town next to me. Is that right? Yeah. He's on, he's if you never go to the comedy cellar, he usually like finishes out the night and he's amazing every time. So, man. He's, so, wait, a couple he, of things. Amy Schumer and some, Howard Stern oh. are all from the same kind of white bread Long Island town. <laughs> what town are you from? He's from Rockville what Center with those, with those three. Oh, you're from Rockville Center. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. No, I'm oh. not from Rockville Center. Those, the, I look like David Tell. Oh, they're from I Rockville little, Center. I think maybe I look a little like Yasser uh. at, at this point. I'm going for the hour. You do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. You. yeah. Either way, you little. look either Jewish or anti-Semitic. I couldn't figure out which one. <laughs> well, well, he's Itali- half Italian, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Three housekeeping things really quickly. One, Mike's podcast, The Gist, returns. It makes returns. its dramatic return. If you're already subscribed, you don't got to go nowhere. It's yeah, just going to show up on your iPod yep. again. If, if you still have an iPod or your iPhone, see, I don't even know the difference. I'm in a fugue state. My I don't know what's going shuffle. on. Other is it things COVID that, or is it pot? Yeah, it's it's COVID. I haven't I haven't smoked anything today. But you know what I did. <laughs> but but there are other things. Coleman Hughes' new album um, oh, yeah. is dropping, and I saw the music video, and I, I listened to the music. And listen, I didn't say a whole lot before it came out because look, I mean, Coleman good. is my partner. I like COVID. I like Coleman. I don't like COVID. I do like Coleman. Coleman is better than COVID. That's true. But Coleman is also good. He's a good, he's a good rapist. And this, this music, this album is worth your time. And I think it works because it's not, it's not overly preachy. It's not necessarily all about his political and philosophical ideas stuff that you can get on his podcast he also he lets his balls hang and he yeah. talks a lot of shit which is what hip-hop is all about rap is a sport it's competitive coleman talks he's he's talking about his like twitter following he like loses half of it and he can still like fill the theater the amphitheater it, it's he it's 
it's good and it's you should listen to it and it will and it was directed you. by like a famous uh <laughs> commercial director who's like really well known the video is really good well, that shouldn't surprise you no that no it's the man it's, has it's taste really, but you remember one quick thing like before you go into your into your yeah, he's like he is like seven um into you go to your fugue state camille remember <laughs> that when somebody found when coleman was doing his like podcast at first and somebody yeah, found yeah. his like his some of his like hip hop tracks on like SoundCloud or something SoundCloud, and posted yeah. them and tried to make fun of him and I'm like yes. I'm sorry is Jeet here making fun of Coleman? <laughs> exactly. I'm like I'm sorry yeah, this is not exactly. working. I was like no he's good. You people are so <laughs> like, late. What the fuck is wrong with you? Like he's he's actually good and yeah. the tra- the track is good and like congratulations, Coleman. That's that's I'm, so I'm very very I, impressed. Is there any trombone playing? I don't know. Yes, the whole trombone. thing is one. <laughs> it's a trombone solo. <laughs> I heard. I heard someone um, liken him to uh, to Earl Sweatshirt, and I will say it's certainly much more like it's in that vein, yeah. than it is like Drake and Kanye. And and folks know how much I love Kanye. I also have a tremendous amount of respect for Drake's Ura uh, as well. Um, but the Odd Future Kids do some really cool stuff, and mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say that it's kind of cut in from that, that yeah, off. Yeah, that is sure. is some inspiration there. Also, though, Denzel's Macbeth. Oh my God! So you I, take one of these Cohen brothers, you set them yeah. set them free from the other one, and you just say, "Hey, put Denzel in Shakespeare again." I, you guys know when I got married, I got engaged. Anyways, I was in New York, and we went to go see Denzel do Julius Caesar. He was yeah. Brutus in that Caesar. My God, the man! We were sitting front row center when we got engaged that night. Denzel was delivering those lines, and he was like projectile spit was coming out of his mouth as he delivered those lines in in passion, you know, the way he usually does. I I wouldn't cared if it was during COVID. I would have been there sitting there getting showered in spittle. It was a brilliant (laughs) performance. Did you meet Denzel on the street? In black and white is beautiful. I did. We, I met him at a screening for that thing he did with, uh, with, um, gosh, I'm forgetting his name now because my brain doesn't work. The guy from, um, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy, the, the mm, Western yeah, yeah. film. Yeah, yeah. And we had the little clip that we played on the podcast oh, some time right, back. Right. That's when, when Denzel made his cameo here. But, but it's brilliant. Go watch it. My God, it's wonderful. And I love that it's culturally appropriative because yeah, the black man, he's acting in the white play. This is wrong. You shouldn't do that because we have to do the thing with the typecasting of the race. Because it's only wrong acting. in the other direction. Come on. It's obscene <laughs> and it's stupid, but this is beautiful. It is great well lighting. It is great so lighting. Moving. Great set. Oh my god! Yeah. Wait, wow. where is this? Where do I see this? Apple TV. Okay. Apple TV. It's an exclusive, and this is. It's just. It's just brilliant. I'm so so happy, and and was just overwhelmed and pleased to be able to watch that. I can't wait to share it with my daughter years from now. There, there's something about fucking Shakespeare. Um, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet is one of my my favorite film adaptation film adaptations of a Shakespeare play, but this is just way up there. Just wow! Kudos to him. I didn't even know if I was going to mention that, but I'm I'm glad I did. And God, it feels like I'm high, but I'm not actually high. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Just you sound like high. high too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but Mike, Mike has been I, playing Flight Simulator for about thirty minutes now. <laughs> Do you do you have any parting thoughts, any words of wisdom you can share with us? Again, I'm delighted that you're back. I'm delighted that you joined us, and I'm delighted yeah. that you you shared your experience uh, with the uh, with the audience here. And thank you for tolerating me in my uh, my debilitated state. It was it was a great pleasure. Um, at the end of my show, I have well, I could say don't cat don't catastrophize the normal. Don't normalize the catastrophic. This is something that mm-hmm. I often talk about. I think I'll be talking about that episode one. But um, at the end of my show, I always end with the words, um, peru, de peru, du peru. So 
I give that to you all. Boom. Do you want to know what that means? No. Nah. No. Sexy sexy time with nice ladies. Yeah. Yeah. Google it. That's what we do. You need a COVID test? Google it. Mm -hmm. You need to know where you get your vaccines? Google it. You want to know what that means? Google it. You want to listen to this podcast some more? Bye. We, we, We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.